Welcome to the Walk Worthy Podcast, a podcast by Hesper Baptist Church located in Cambridge, Ontario. Our local church exists to make disciples who walk worthy of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ with the help of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God the Father. We hope and pray this is encouragement to you and to anyone else you would share this with. Thanks for the wonderful worship this morning. I really enjoy it, singing with you all. And this is, uh, they call the pulpit a pastor's desk, and I take that seriously. It's not a prop, it's not a, it is a working desk. Here we are. So let me pray for us one more time. Not because the Lord is not here, but because he does hear, and because we need him. Heavenly Father, would you be uh, with me this morning as I preach your word, that I would be faithful to your truth, that your spirit would speak through me to this people, that your spirit would open the eyes of their hearts to see and to love what they hear. Father, that uh, if there's any error, it would fall by the wayside, but if there's truth, that it would take root and grow and prosper the faith of this church. In your son's name, amen. You would turn with me. Uh, our text today is Genesis 37, 12 through 36. It's another hard text. Uh, a lot of evil takes place, but there's also a lot of good that takes place, and we want to, we want to see both today. So let me read it for us. Genesis 37, 12 through 36. Now his brothers went to pasture their father's flock near Shechem, And Israel said to Joseph, Are not your brothers pasturing the flock at Shechem? Come, I will send you to them. And he said to him, Here I am. So he said to him, Go now, see if it is well with your brothers and with the flock, and bring me word. So he sent him from the valley of Hebron, and he came to Shechem. And a man found him wandering in the fields. And the man asked him, What are you seeking? I am seeking my brothers, he said. Tell me, please. Where they are pasturing the flock. And the man said, They have gone away, for I heard them say, Let us go to Dothan. So Joseph went after his brothers and found them at Dothan. They saw him from afar, and before he came near to them, they conspired against him to kill him. They said to one another, Here comes this dreamer. Come now, let us kill him and throw him into one of the pits. Then we will say that a fierce animal has devoured him, and we will see what becomes of his dreams. But when Reuben heard it, he rescued him out of their hands, saying, Let us not take his life, and do not lay a hand on him, that he might rescue him out of their hand to restore him to to his father. So when Joseph came to his brothers, they stripped him of his robe, the robe of many colors that he wore, and they took him and threw him into a pit. The pit was empty. There was no water in it. Then they sat down to eat, and looking up, They saw a caravan of Ishmaelites coming from Gilead, with their camels bearing gum, balm, and myrrh, on their way to carry it down to Egypt. Then Judah said to his brothers, What profit is it if we kill our brother and conceal his blood? Come, let us sell him to the Ishmaelites, and let us not our hand be upon him, for he is our brother, our own flesh. And his brothers listened to him. Then Midianite traders passed by. They drew Joseph up and lifted him out of the pit and sold him to the Ishmaelites for twenty shekels of silver. They took Joseph to Egypt. When Reuben returned to the pit and saw that Joseph was not in the pit, he tore his clothes and returned to his brothers and said, The boy is gone, and I, where shall I go? 
Then they took Joseph's robe and slaughtered a goat and dipped the robe in the blood. And they sent the robe of many colors and brought it to their father and said, This we have found. Please identify whether it is your son's robe or not. And he identified it and said, It is my son's robe. A fierce animal has devoured him. Joseph is without a doubt torn to pieces. Then Jacob tore his garments and put sackcloth on his loins and mourned for his son many days. All his sons and all his daughters rose up to comfort him, but he refused to be comforted and said, No, I shall go down to Sheol to my son mourning. Thus his father wept for him. Meanwhile, the Midianites had sold him in Egypt to Potiphar, an officer of Pharaoh, the captain of the guard. So, here we are. My title today, The Perverse Plots of People and the Persevering Plans and Purposes of God. I like a title that alliterates. It makes it easy to remember. So let me explain the title because it shows us where we're going. To be perverse is to be sinful, to steer off the right path and go on the wrong path. So to be perverse is to be sinful, and to be persevering or to be preserving is to be saving. And that is the plan and purpose of God here, to preserve his covenant family. So a word here about application. If I could sit down with each one of you and we could work through this text and I could hear your story, then we could together make very personal connections. But as as I'm preaching this morning, and there are many of you sitting out there and, and even more people uh, tuning in online, looking at the live stream, I can't make that kind of personal application to your life. So I'm going to ask you to pay attention closely, take notes if you've got a journaling Bible or a, a notebook or a napkin from breakfast, and just write a few things down that seem important so that, so that you can connect your own story, reflect on your own life, and say, here am I in the story, and who is God for me, and someone like me in this text, and who is Jesus for you in this moment? So be thinking about that as we, as we move forward. So, as we go into this text, there, there, are, there are stories like this that we see told and there's a particular film that I enjoy called The Game. And in The Game, a younger brother uh, buys a gift for his older brother, who is very wealthy, the man who has everything, and he buys for him uh, a ticket to a game, right? And the game is this elaborate, uh, sort of real-life mystery game that is elaborate because it's sort of a way to entertain uh, the very wealthy. And his older brother takes it, doesn't think much of it. He doesn't think really that much of his younger brother, uh, who's always coming to him for money and whatever he needs. So he takes it, but as the film progresses, the older brother takes a great interest in the game, and it really enlivens his sense of competition, and he really strives to win the game. Partway through the film, he has reason to believe that the game is actually a scam designed to fleece wealthy people of their wealth and leave them for dead. And now he's fighting for his life and for his fortune. Meanwhile, 
His younger brother is actually hopeful that this game will provide a transformative experience for his brother. That his older brother, who who witnessed his own father's suicide and who has been going down a dark path of isolation and loneliness and, and finding only his wealth to be precious to him, would be transformed through this experience to begin to value that would be truly valuable, which would be relationships and the love of people around him, and that he would sort of come alive again to life. So that's the goal. And everything that happens in this film are following these two plans. But only one plan actually comes to fruition, and it's that of the younger brother, trying to rescue his older brother. And that's a lot of what we're going to see here. We're going to see everything that happened is following two different plans simultaneously. And yet, only one plan and one purpose is that which succeeds, and that is the plan and purposes of God. So as we move, where have we been? So here's a few things to note from our text. Remember Sean's sermon a few weeks ago from Genesis 36. We remember from seeing the generations of Esau that God always keeps his word, even to those who are not of the covenant family. If God gives his word, he keeps his word. Then remember the, just the previous sermon that Sean gave us from early in Genesis 37, that where God is giving his word again, confirmed by two dreams to Joseph, that his brothers and his parents would bow to him. So by giving these two dreams, God has given us his word again, and we know from the previous chapter that God always fulfills his word. Nevertheless, in our passage today, Joseph's brothers, in their hatred and jealousy, will attempt to prevent God's word from being fulfilled. That's their purpose. God himself is not mentioned in this passage, but we will see that rather than prevent God's word from being fulfilled, Joseph's brothers unwittingly contribute to the very plan and purposes of God to preserve the covenant family and the promised purpose and plan to rescue and redeem a people for himself through a coming Savior, Jesus. It is only God's plan that succeeds here today. There is not only an emphasis on the covenant family in our passage, but that they are also flesh and blood family as well. The word brother is used ten times in these 25 verses. It will play an important role in what happens. So, Let's begin with the, pers- the, the perverse plotting of the covenant family against Joseph. This plotting isn't only against Joseph, but against God himself. Note in verse 19, here comes this dreamer. Right? It's the dreams that God has given Joseph that so upset and infuriate his brothers. The dreams have been given by God and are his plan for the covenant family. And this is what the brothers most strongly object to. But let's take a step back in our text. First, we notice that neither Jacob nor Joseph seem to be aware of the deep hatred and jealousy that his brothers have for him, that Moses has made us aware of as he writes this narrative, and he makes us aware of it in verse 4, in verse 8, and verse 11, that the brothers are deeply hate and are jealous of Joseph because of his father's favoritism, 
and because of these dreams that God gave him. And so Jacob sends Joseph to Shechem, where they're pasturing the flock, and Joseph is willing to go. Now, notice that, and remember, Shechem is where Simeon and Levi commit massive murder. Right? This is where uh, they, they kill an entire city because of the rape of Dinah. So going back to Shechem is a dangerous place and a dangerous journey. But Joseph is willing to go. Noted by saying, here I am in verse 13. Note the irony that Joseph is going out to look after his brothers, to look in on them for their well-being, and that's why Jacob is sending them. To look after them. Joseph doesn't see or find his brothers, but providentially a man encounters Joseph and tells them where they have gone with the flock. God is keeping things on course, providentially. Upon the brothers seeing Joseph from afar and recognizing him because he is wearing the despised coat of many colors given to him by his father, they plot, let's kill him. Let's throw him into the pits, lie about an animal attack, and then see what comes of his dreams. Violence and deception is on their hearts. We see how they have adopted Jacob's proclivity to deceive, right? Let's kill him, and then let's lie about it. We also see that though Joseph is not a sinless person, he is noted as completely innocent in this incident, perhaps, perhaps prideful and naive, but not deceptive. Joseph is out for his brother's good. Joseph is serving his father faithfully, looking out after his brother and their flocks. Here's Re- then Reuben has a rescue plan. It is a deception itself. The key here is shed no blood. Do not actively kill him, but passively kill him by casting him into one of the pits alive, and we'll just leave him there and abandon him to die. These pits were frequently used as cisterns to gather water, which is why the text notes that this particular pit had no water in it. He wasn't going to drown, they were, but it was deep enough to hold water. We'll cast him in it. He won't be able to get out, and he'll just die there. But we won't actually have shed his blood. We will have avoided the curse of Cain, and avoid the discovery and confrontation with God by not shedding his blood. Joseph's blood will not cry out because we'll not have shed it. Kind of a twisted way of thinking, but that's Reuben's plan. And this may be what gives Judah his idea later, but the point here is that there, there is this plan to rescue Joseph. Right? He's, he's telling them to do this because he plans to come back later and rescue Joseph and return him to his father. We don't exactly know why, Perhaps Reuben was hoping to uh, redeem himself to Jacob after the disgrace of lying with Bilhah, which we see in Genesis 35:22. Perhaps he's because he's the eldest and he feels responsible and he doesn't want Joseph to die on his watch. We don't, we don't really know why, but Reuben has this plan. But Reuben's rescue fails. It does not come to pass. Joseph is violently attacked when he shows up. He's stripped of his robe and he's cast into the pit. These are words of violence. They deeply hate him and they want to take their hatred out on him. These are deep pits. And after they cast him into the pit, they sit down to eat. Probably eating the very provisions that Joseph brought with him from his father. So while he's lying in the pit, they're now eating the provisions that were given them. Very calloused. 
And then using profit and the familial interest as reasons, which is highly spurious, Judah moves his brothers to sell Joseph to the Ishmaelites. Distant relatives of theirs, Ishmael would be Jacob's uncle. So now the plan to kill Joseph also does not come to fruition because now they've got this new idea, let's sell him into slavery and then we don't have to kill him at all. Nevertheless, certainly the dreams cannot come true with our brother sold off into slavery to uh, a foreign people in a foreign land. So they all agree and we see that Judah is starting to lead his brothers rather than Reuben even though he does so sinfully. And it's just a reminder in this text that the Redeemer that God promised will not come from this generation. They just aren't what was promised. So we have the aftermath of their plot. Nothing the brothers plan fulfills their purpose. They don't kill him. Reuben doesn't rescue him. And they sell him into slavery. But as we will see, God's plan still comes to pass. Joseph is not killed, nor is he rescued, nor is he restored in this passage. Yet the dreams and plans of God that they sought to destroy are unwittingly advanced. And we see that, we get a hint of it at the very end of the passage, when we see that the Midianites, and the Ish, who are the Ishmaelites, will sell Joseph to an officer of Pharaoh's household in Egypt. And the stage is set for, for Joseph to eventually ascend to govern Egypt, and they will come and bow to him. But we're not there yet. A few sermons to go. We'll go back to our text. So we close this part with the deception of Jacob. Right, The coat is dipped in a slaughtered goat's blood. Uh, we found this. They purport in ignorance. Look, well, we just found this laying there, this coat covered in blood. Is it your son's? They've learned the deception of Jacob well, these brothers. And Jacob is left to his own conclusions, and the deception is complete. He assumes Joseph has been killed by a, a vicious animal. And Jacob mourns inconsolably. Now we're going to move from this perverse plan and purpose of the brothers to the preserving plan and purposes of God for his covenant family through Joseph. Right? God is moving to preserve the very people who are working this evil and despising God's word given to Joseph in two dreams. So again, God is not mentioned by name, but his providence can be seen in the language and the parallels used in the text. I won't get into all of those, but I do want to take us back to Genesis 15, right? Verse 13, where God makes his covenant with Abraham. Now listen to this. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go down to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried in a good old age, and they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. So we have God promising Abram 
in the covenant that he makes with him in Genesis 15 that this would happen. Before any of them existed, God has told Abram what will be. And this is the way that God sees it happen. So this is the plan and purpose of God from long before any of these brothers were born. Even before Jacob himself. So we see that this is God's plan. He foretells the sojourning and slavery of Abram's offspring outside the land of promise. And then we also see in Psalm 105, 16 and 17 that even the famine that brought the the covenant family to Egypt was uh, summoned by God. Nothing here is happenstance. If we look at Psalm 105, 16, you don't have to turn there with me. It says, when he summoned a famine on the land and broke all supply of bread, he had sent a man ahead of them, Joseph, who was sold as a slave. So we see that not only is God foretelling that this will happen to the covenant family, but he's also summoning the very famine that will bring the covenant family to Egypt. This is God's plan and purpose, and it is happening. So what else do we see? Joseph himself credits everything to God's sovereign plan and purpose. Right Later, I'm kind of fast-forming and stealing somebody's thunder who's going to preach on the rest of Genesis, but Joseph himself credits everything. We see that in Genesis 45, 5 through 8. This is what Joseph says. And now do not be distressed or angry with yourselves because you sold me here. For God sent me before you to preserve life. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and there are yet five years in which there will be neither plowing nor harvest. And God sent me before you to preserve for you a remnant on the earth and to keep you alive for you many survivors. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. He has made me a father to Pharaoh and Lord of all his house and ruler over all the land of Egypt. Four times he's saying in this text, or three times, I'm sorry, he's saying in this text, God sent me here, not you. Then we see him say it again in Genesis 49, 8. Judah, um, what we actually see here, I'm sorry, I'm going to take a moment to point out that that the preserving of the covenant family is an advancement of the plan of redemption. For we see Jacob declaring that Judah, that kings will come from Judah. Judah, your brother shall praise you. Your hand shall be on the neck of your enemies. Your father's son shall bow down before you. Judah is a lion's club, a lion's cub from the prey. My son, you have gone up. He stooped down. He crouched as a lion and as a lioness. Who dares rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until tribute comes to him, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. So again, we see that God's purpose in preserving the covenant family is to keep his promise of the Redeemer, which is going to come through Judah in the form of a king. That's a major revelation at this point in our redemptive story. The Redeemer will be a king. Joseph finally says this lastly in Genesis 50, verse 19 and 20. After Jacob dies, they're afraid that now Joseph will finally take his revenge for what they did to him. And Joseph again says, Do not fear, for am I in the place of God? 
As for you, you meant it for evil against me, but God meant it for good to bring it about that many people should be kept alive even as they are today. So notice it doesn't say you meant it for good, but God used it, or you meant it for evil, but God used it for good, or God turned it for good. It says God meant it for good. Joseph's sale into slavery to Egypt to rule, to preserve the covenant family, was God's intention all along for Joseph. And it was, the purpose was good to preserve the covenant family and many survivors from this famine. And none of the brothers' purposes come to pass. In fact, here they are bowing down to their brother just as God envisioned. Everything was planned by both the covenant family for evil and planned by God for good. But only God's purposes were fulfilled through God's plan. And there is a pattern that emerges here that I want to point out to you. So we're going to move from the plan, the perverse plan of evil, and the preserving plan of good, to the perverse plotting of the covenant family against Jesus. And we're going to see the pattern. Okay? So here we go. The pattern we see happening to Joseph happens to Jesus. First, we see people plot perverse plans because they despise the word of God. And the pastor likes alliteration. (laughs) Matthew 26, 1 through 4. When Jesus had finished all these sayings, he said to his disciples, You know that after two days the Passover is coming, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to be crucified. Then the chief priests and the elders, covenant family, of the people gathered in the palace of the high priest, whose name was Caiaphas, and they plotted together in order to arrest Jesus by stealth and kill him. Right? Jesus is foretelling, I am going to be delivered up to be crucified, and God's people, the leadership, are saying, how do we arrest Jesus secretly and kill him? They're plotting, and Jesus is planning. In fact, how do we even get to crucifixion from the plotting of God's people? Because God's people didn't have the power to crucify Jesus. They didn't have the power of life or death anymore. The Romans were in charge. So how are we going to get from the plotting of the people to a Roman death on a cross? They could not foresee it, but Jesus could. It's his plan, right? So then we see that their purposes is to thwart God's purposes for their own purposes. Let's look at John eleven forty five through 53. Many of the Jews, therefore, who had come with Mary and had seen what he did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. So the chief priests and the Pharisees gathered the council and said, What are we to do for this man performs many signs? Well, how about believe in him? That's an option, right? We could believe him. But rather, they say, if we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And the Romans will come and take away both our place and our nation. But one of them, Caiaphas, who was high priest that year, said to them, you know nothing at all, nor do you understand that it is better for you that one man should die for the people, not that the whole nation should perish. He did not say this of his own accord, but being high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the nation, and not for the nation only, but also to gather into one the children of God who are scattered abroad. 
So from that day on, they made plans to put him to death. So Caiaphas is prophesying the very salvation that God has promises, but he doesn't realize it. He thinks he's saying, hey, let's preserve our place by killing Jesus so the Romans don't come down on us. God's plan is to accomplish his purposes such that, he, that the people's own plans and actions work to advance them. You see that? God's plan and purpose is that the people, the leadership, the Pharisees, the high priest, would have Jesus arrested and crucified. Through their own plotting against him, he would accomplish his plans for them. That is part of the pattern we see as well. God's servants, this is another piece of the pattern I want you to see. God's servants are tested by him through suffering. We see that in Psalm 105, a couple verses down from what we just read about Joseph. Until what God said had come to pass, the word of the Lord tested him. So in the years between Joseph's Uh, being sold into slavery, and his ascendancy to govern all of Egypt, he was tested. He was tested by God, by the word of God, doing the work of God in his own life, which is probably why Joseph understands the plans and purposes of God by the time his brothers get there. We see another testing in Luke 4, uh, 1 and 2, and then we'll skip down to 13, we see... The testing of Jesus. And Jesus, full of the Holy Spirit, returned from the Jordan and was led by the Spirit in the wilderness for 40 days being tempted by the devil. And he ate nothing during those days. And when they were ended, he was hungry. Right? So Jesus himself is tested in these days before uh, the full plan of God comes to fruition. And we see in verse 13 this little notation. And when the devil had ended every temptation... And failed, he departed from him until an opportune time. And I think that opportune time that the devil found was at the crucifixion itself. What better time to test the Son of God than right before his death, his impending death? So Jesus himself is tested by the Word of God, but he does it successfully. So we see how God delivers his covenant people through the selling and slavery of Joseph as a major example of the pattern for how God will accomplish salvation for his people through the very sinfulness and suffering of his people ultimately accomplished in Jesus Christ. So now we're going to see the preserving plans and purposes of God for his covenant family through Jesus. We see God's plan and purposes for the cross of Christ in Scripture. We just read Isaiah 53 this morning, and we see that it was the will of God to crush him. In Mark 8, 31-33, Jesus knows, intends, and informs his disciples of his crucifixion even before it happens as God's plan. In Acts 4, 27 and 28, we see that for those who plan against God are actually accomplishing God's plan unwittingly. And I'll, I'll read that real briefly. For truly in this city there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, 
to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. This is how God works. So God's plan was to save and preserve his covenant people from every tribe, tongue, nation, and people through the sinful slaughtering of his son Jesus. That's the plan of God. And his purpose is the only one that's accomplished. So God's pattern for saving his covenant people hasn't changed. We see it in Joseph, we see it in Jesus, and we're going to see it in our own lives. So let's make this application personal. I can't do it for you, but you can do it for yourselves and you can help each other do it through conversations that you're going to have later. Right? Look for this pattern in your own life and then ask yourself when you see it, how is God transforming me? How can my faith grow in this moment? What is God up to? Who and who is Jesus for me as I suffer from others' sin and sin against others? Right? We will find ourselves sinned against, sometimes horrifically, and we will sin against others. But what we have is Jesus. Jesus has died for us so that our sins are not the end of the story, and the sins of others against us are not the end of our story. So let's make this personal, but you'll have, to, you'll have to look at your own life and see where this pattern shows up. Our personal paths for salvation will also follow this pattern. Not only does God save his people through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus, but he patterns the life of his covenant family to follow in Jesus' footsteps. We see it in Romans eight sixteen through 17 The children of God will suffer with him. Luke 9.23, in following Jesus, he calls us to take up our own cross daily. We see it in John 15.20 and 21. We will suffer as Jesus suffered. They do these things because of Jesus' name, because his words are despised. And we see it in 1 Peter 1.6 and 7. God's children are tested as they wait for him. It's the pattern for us. Psalm 21.11 and Matthew 5.11 says that evil will come against you and will fail and you will be rewarded. I'm just going to take a look at that real quickly with you. So in Psalm 21 we see, Though they plan evil against you, though they devise mischief, they will not succeed. That's God's promise. We see it again in Matthew 5.11. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. It's a pattern. And God promises that the evil planned against you will not succeed. Only only his plans and purposes for you will bear fruit. So what then can we expect? We should expect suffering on our salvation journey. Though our pattern will imitate Jesus' pattern, there is a difference. It's a huge difference you need to hear. Christ's suffering is redemptive for us. Our suffering is transformative and sanctifying. We are not saved because of our suffering. We are transformed by God through it. Jesus' suffering is redemptive and saves us. 
People will do evil against us, even from fellow members of the covenant family, and vice versa. We will hurt each other because we are still sinners. But only those things which are in keeping with God's plan and purposes for our transformation into the likeness of Jesus and drawing us closer to himself will happen to us and not of those who seek to harm us. Let me just say that one more time. Only those things which are in keeping with God's plan and purposes for our transformation into the likeness of Jesus and to draw us closer to himself will happen. And not those, not the purposes of those who seek to harm us. So this is how scripture speaks of such suffering, right? We see it in James 1, count it all joy. Why? Because our suffering will lead to endurance, which will make us perfect and complete. Hebrews 12, 3 through 11, all discipline seems painful, but later it produces the peaceful fruit of righteousness. We see it in 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7. If necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith may be found to result in ultimately the salvation of your souls. So what suffering counts? All suffering? Does all the things we suffer count towards this purpose? To the extent that both sufferings and pleasures test our faith, challenge it and strengthen it, it is sanctifying suffering. All suffering and pleasures tempt us, I think, away from God. And to the extent that we draw closer to him, they are sanctifying sufferings. So we don't like to compare sufferings. Oh, you tripped and fell and skinned your knee? Well, I tripped and fell and broke my leg. Your suffering isn't as important as my suffering. Or vice versa, buck up, something worse happened to somebody else. We don't do that. Because each of our sufferings is designed to draw us closer to God and to increase our faith. So I think it includes all suffering. right? It's, it's, um, my wife just planted uh, tomatoes in a little pot, and she made sure that it got outside as quickly as possible. And the reason for that is because if the tomato plant were to grow inside, well, it would, it would never be pollinated and we'd never get any tomatoes, but set that aside for a moment. It's also because if the tomato plant doesn't experience any adversity, it will not grow strong. Just like a tree, it must be outside and exposed to the elements and to the wind, and the, the stress of the wind will cause the tomato plant to grow stronger. That's a metaphor for what is happening with our suffering in the plan of God. So in a few moments, we are going to be reminded of the the perverseness of our plotting and the preserving work of our Savior on the cross of Christ in the Lord's Supper. When we are deeply suffering and our faith is tested, we cry out for help from God and other trusted believers because it is through our running to Jesus that we are strengthened through our suffering and we will run to God and we will help each other run to God, and we will help each other apply such sermons to our lives so that we will see it. And now we will see it tangibly in the Lord's Supper as we take the bread and drink the cup. Amen.